0: Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Non-Fiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to the winner episode of Read Smart, the official Bailey Gifford Prize for Non-Fiction podcast, which is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. We have just announced the winner at an incredible ceremony at the Science Museum in London, where I was lucky enough to catch up with some of the shortlisted authors and to one previous winner too.
1: Lea Ufi, free, coming of age at the end of history. So, of course, this book has had a long journey in the context of this prize, longlisted and now shortlisted. And that means what to you? Well, it's just incredible because I... Uh, so, English is not my first language, not, not even my second or my third language. It's actually my fourth language. <laughs> and I had Just run, to... run through them for us. So, it's, uh, French was my first language, then Albanian, then Italian. And then I really started writing in English when I began my PhD. So, at the age of 25. And uh, so, when I've been through basically a life of being paranoid about writing in this language that I didn't feel like completely inhabited... And, so, and and of course writing in a literary way is even harder than writing in an academic way where there is a sort of territory of words that you can explore and are familiar and yeah, literature is something different and needs to be something different with people and needs to do something different for them. So yeah, I was very, I guess, an- anxious when I started and it was a very big surprise for me to be on the long list and then on the short list. So yeah. Congratulations, I hope you have a lovely, lovely evening, enjoy it all. Thank you very much. John Preston, Fall. Tell me what it means to you to when you found yourself on the long list. What did did you make of that, first of all? Well, I'm very fatalistic. So having found myself on the long list, I was firmly convinced I would never make it onto the short list. (laughs) Uh, So then when I did make it onto the short list, I felt and still do feel really thrilled, actually. And, you know, particularly since there are a lot of very, very good books on both the short list and the long list. So, you know, I'm kind of proud to be in such exalted company. Great. Thank you very much.
2: Uh, my name is Patrick Radden-Keefe and my book is Empire of Pain.
1: You've made the short list. You were on the long list. When you were on the long list, what did that mean to you? Did you think, wow, this is interesting, I mean, you've, you've won awards before, but I just wonder how that felt to you given what a long labor of love this was? Well, I I think,
2: um, you know, I I try not to uh, put too much stock in these things, um, if only because um, I think there's an element of chance. And and obviously, on on any given long list, there are a lot of wonderful books, right? So for me, uh, there was a sense of pride just in in being included, um, in being uh, invited to the ball. um, And uh, also a real sense of satisfaction, because as you say, these are lonely projects. I mean, when you're when you're working on a big book like this, you, you're, you're pretty much alone much of the time, laboring away. And to to see the book come out and, and be read and be appreciated and then be recognized in this way just means a great deal to me.
1: Congratulations. Um, and, um, yeah, I hope you have a lovely evening.
2: Oh, I will. Thank you so much.
1: Hi, I'm Cal Flynn, and I'm the author of Islands of Abandonment. Tell me what it means to you to have been longlisted and then shortlisted and here tonight. Um, The whole thing has been just a crazy happy dream. So it's wonderful and it was uh, totally not on my radar as a possibility. So um, yeah, it's just incredible. I can't believe I'm here. So Congratulations. I, I hope you have a lovely evening. Thank you so much. I'm sitting on the same table as Hallie Rubenhold. How are you feeling right now, now that we know who the 2021 Well,
3: it's so exciting, first of all, to be here because I felt like last year sort of dropped off of the record and um, coming back to the to the prize announcement, having the dinner, this time being able to sit and actually eat the dinner and not feel physically sick. Um, and, you know, it's, it's sort of closing the circle. It's, uh, it's a wonderful experience. And one of the wonderful things about winning this prize is it's like Bailey Gifford has a type of alumni program. And you're never forgotten as, 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 uh, as a winner, as a former winner. And you get to share in the excitement of, of the current winner. And, and there's a certain fellowship that, that develops. It's, it's really magnificent.
1: Has it changed your life, winning the prize?
3: It has absolutely transformed my life. It is. It has been a transformative experience, um, and um, yeah, I, I'm just in how I view myself as an author. It's been fantastic.
1: Tell me a bit more about that. It's, it, obviously, lots of things have come your way, and it's changed what you're doing and what you're working on. But how has it changed how you see yourself?
3: Well, I think as an author. I mean, everybody has a different trajectory, but I think we spend a lot of time trying to make it, trying to have our voices heard, and you know, it's a real scrum. There are thousands of books out, thousands of books on the shelf, and you know, to to feel as if you have been heard, that you have a voice, and people are interested in that voice, really changes how one feels about oneself.
1: And if you were to say one thing to Patrick Raddenkeith now, who has just won, I mean, literally in the last few minutes, what would that be?
3: Oh, enjoy it. I know these, these next 24 hours will be utterly surreal, um, but I really hope he enjoys this year, and I hope he gets to fully enjoy it. I hope the literary festivals are back in full force and all of the wonderful opportunities that uh, both myself and Craig Brown didn't really get to fully exploit over the past couple of years. I hope he gets that.
1: Do, do, you, do you remember the 24-hour the period after you won? I mean, I remember we were in this room and, you know, you jumped out of your chair.
3: <laughs> I remember being being grabbed by both my literary agent and my editor on either side of me and uh, it was a moment of pure jubilation and actually everything kind of after my name was called is a bit of a blur. You know, I remember the the colour of the lights in this room and that's pretty much it. (laughs) I suppose there is an
1: awful lot to be said for prizes in the context that you have just outlined that that there is something really valuable it's not just about the fact that you
3: win money which is very nice I'm sure but there's something more yeah it's as I said it's about having your voice heard and having your voice recognized and that is so important as as a writer somebody who spends so much time on their own to have that acknowledgement feels wonderful publicly
0: The ceremony was live streamed on Facebook and YouTube but in case you missed it, here is the moment when Chair of this year's prize, Andrew Holgate, declared Patrick Radden Keefe the winner of the £50,000 prize. And after some discussion we alighted very firmly and decisively on a book of uh, enormous drive, of striking writing, of fierce moral concentration. Exhaustive research, and above all, of the most repulsive uh, narrative drive, a book that we think a worthy winner this year or any year. And that book is Empire of Pain by Patrick Robinson. And now I am delighted to be joined by Patrick in the studio. Thank you so much for joining us today, and of course, congratulations.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Um, you have been speaking to journalists and people. About this, for some time now. Tell me how you're feeling right now.
2: Uh, <laughs> truthfully, a little exhausted, but um, but but very happy.
0: Well, let's take you back then to the moment that Andrew read out your name. Is it all a bit of a haze, or or, or does it feel like you know exactly what you were thinking at that time?
2: I think I was a bit stunned. I mean, I I um, I, I really didn't think I was going to win it was um I was I was I felt very lucky just to be uh long-listed and then short and and to be there last night a, to a point where the plan was I was supposed to fly out fly home this morning I had I'd actually scheduled a full day of work on Thursday I hadn't written a speech um I really had not given much thought to the idea that uh that my name might be called, so I was a bit, I was a bit stunned and probably a bit unprepared.
0: <laughs> well, you didn't sound unprepared in the speech. I mean, it was pretty fluent, um, as I recall. But I wonder about the psychology of of that—that that you you make a conscious decision to say, "I'm not going to win," because you really believe you're not going to win, because you have a one in six chance of being the person that's going to be called out,
2: right? I suppose so, but 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 you know, I. I'm American. the the um, <laughs> the The book is a is it's such a dark book in some ways, um, and the opioid crisis is. I mean, it's a strange thing, right? Because the Sacklers are a family that has a big branch right here in London, and they've been here for decades. And there are many British Sacklers, and the signs of their philanthropy are everywhere in England, also in Scotland, at universities, at art museums. Um, but the consequences of the misconduct of their company are not entirely confined, but largely confined to the United States, right? It's across an ocean. The opioid crisis is something that people here might read about in the newspaper, but it's not something that people necessarily feel in the same really immediate way that people in the U.S. do, where most people you talk to will know somebody who's struggled with opioids, might know somebody who's died. Um so I, I thought that there was a kind of remoteness to the subject matter that might be a hurdle. But honestly, part of it was also just that I sort of thought I was so excited to get to get um to get back to London. I had a wonderful trip planned. I was supposed to come here in April twenty twenty and it was canceled. Of course. And I was a bit uh upset about that. And so <laughs> the opportunity to come back uh was an exciting one and um I just thought I'd be more relaxed if I wasn't giving too much thought to the idea that um, I had just sort of accepted that, uh, you know, it's nice to be shortlisted.
0: Wow. OK, so so let's go back to the, um, the germ of this. I mean, it, it started out as a piece for the New Yorker, but... But the name of the Sackler family was, was one that you were aware of, but, but not how they'd made their money or the detail of how they'd made their money. That's right, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think as we move through the world, particularly if you live in a big city um, where there are education and cultural institutions, you become ambiently aware of these family names. Um, Carnegie, Rockefeller, Frick in, in New York. You start to see them. Um, there are other names that are less well-known. I mean, I, I did a fellowship years ago at the New York Public Library at the Cullman Center for Scholars and Writers at the New York Public Library. And when I did the fellowship, I learned about the Cullmans, who were this very generous couple who'd given to all kinds of things. And, and once I learned the name, I started seeing it everywhere. You see the signs of, of philanthropy. And so with the Sacklers... It's just, it was just kind of part of the wallpaper in a way for for somebody <laughs> like me who grew up in Boston, went to college in New York, uh, lived in London, lived in Washington D.C. In all of these places, the Sackler name is sort of etched into marble in the background.
0: But but also the the acceptance that it's a family that's connected with prestige, right? Yes. So yeah. so when did you start to think? I, can, I have something here beyond the article, the long-form piece that you wrote that can become a book.
2: Well, initially, I didn't think there was a book there because – I mean, I suppose it would have been possible to write a book. But um, my last book, Say Nothing, was a book about the Troubles and in Northern Ireland. And um, it was written in a very uh, close register with the characters I, I wanted to – get inside their heads as much as possible and tell a story that felt quite intimate so that the reader would feel as if they had access to the thoughts and feelings of the people that they were reading about in the way that you would reading a novel, but this is a true story. And it's a challenge when you're writing a true story because the the story is really only as vivid as your sources are. And... um, I was very happy with Say Nothing. I, I, I felt as though I kind of found a register that I liked to write in. And so I think with the Sacklers, I thought about writing a book, but I worried that I couldn't get close enough
0: and And then, of course, you did when when there was litigation and papers were released, and that allowed you, given that they weren't prepared to engage with you or present themselves for any engagement that that allowed you to to at least do far more with the material
2: yeah, and I would almost argue it's almost better i mean we we at the New Yorker where I work, we talk about pieces that we call write-arounds, which is when you don't have access to the central figure. And so instead, you need to sort of write around them. And some writers don't like doing them. I love doing them. And um, I think sometimes a write-around is actually stronger than a piece where you have a lot of access. I mean, I'll give you an example, though I could come up with many. One of my favorite political profiles ever was a big profile that my my former colleague, George Packer, wrote of Angela Merkel. And Merkel this probably came out 10 years ago. Merkel didn't cooperate with the piece, didn't give him an interview. Um, so he was forced to track down everyone who had ever worked with her. And it was all these people who'd been kind of obsessed with the enigma of Angela Merkel for decades. And they all trotted out their very best Angela Merkel stories. And so the piece is just kind of one gold nugget after another as George – because she wouldn't talk to him has to track down all these people who've known her at all these different phases of her life and they've all clearly given a lot of thought to this woman and what she means and how she acts and what makes her tick and so it's just one probing resonant characterization after another and if you think about what the alternative would have been Angela Merkel grants extensive interviews and she is boring as all get-up, and uh, just kind of talks him in monotone into a stupor. Um, I feel like occasionally it can be a blessing when people don't cooperate. So in the case of the Sacklers, of course it would have been great to get interviews, but if we got interviews, there would have been lawyers in the room, there would have been PR handlers in the room, I would have had to pre-negotiate things I could ask about, things I couldn't ask about. They might ask for approval of the things that they said. I'd be getting talking points. What ended up happening instead is that, first of all, I tracked down hundreds of people who knew the family or had worked at the company over the years, but then also I got their private emails I'd much prefer to have somebody's private emails that they wrote thinking that nobody would ever read them.
0: Than their public statements. Than their public statements. (laughs) I'm I'm really interested in the register that you talk about, that you discovered in in the writing of the the book on Northern Ireland and and this one too. The the kind of literary, novelistic non-fiction that that you do. How... How difficult is that in the context of making sure that the facts are also absolutely of prime importance?
2: Well, I think that the... um, I guess I would answer that in two ways. I think that keeping it factual is not difficult at all in the sense that um, I do think that there is a history of narrative nonfiction writing that strives for a kind of novelistic effect where there's cheating. And, and I'm very cautious and, and aware of this because some of this cheating happened in The New Yorker. I mean, one of the most famous examples of this is, is In Cold Blood by Truman Capote, which we now know contains scenes that are entirely invented, dialogue that is just made up out of thin air. He commits every sin. And then had, you know, the gall to say I've written a nonfiction novel. <laughs> um, and he's not alone. I mean, some of the other greats from that kind of mid-century period of the New Yorker uh have have similarly been called out in, in more recent times for cheating. That part's not hard for me. I don't I I'm it's very easy for me to distinguish fact from fiction, and I I never try and juice the details. Um the thing that's hard is that if you know you're not going to do that, it takes a lot of work to arrive at the kind of vivid details that you want. And so in a way, it's all found art, right? It's, it's – you kind of go out there and, and you're only as – your story is only as good as what you're able to find. So you have to kind of keep – Turning over stones and seeing what you find—it's these tiny little things. But I mean, Arthur Sackler is a big figure in the first third of the book. Arthur died in nineteen eighty-seven. Um, I wanted to really bring him to life because he felt to me like a like a figure out of a Saul Bellow novel. He was so dynamic and and uh, charismatic and full of contradiction. Um, I wanted to know what his voice sounded like. I wanted to describe his voice. It took me forever to find video of him uh, because he died all these years ago. And eventually in the archives of the Smithsonian in Washington, I found um, there was a tape of uh, a little segment that they'd done on a since-defunct TV show that the Smithsonian did for public television back in the 1980s. And I had to get somebody at the Smithsonian to digitize it for me and send it to me. And... um, and I heard his voice. And then I could describe his voice.
0: Was it like you imagined it to be? Y-
2: yes, but more so. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It was this kind of... Um, I had interviewed somebody who said that he wielded He wielded his voice like a weapon. Wow. That he had this kind of very cultivated sort of mid-Atlantic dictionary. He, what he didn't want to sound like is a Jewish guy from Flatbush in Brooklyn. And, and,
0: and of course, he was responsible for creating what, what you could argue was the template for OxyContin yes. in, in the marketing of Valium.
2: Yes. He was this master marketer. And in some ways for me, I mean, to go back to, to where we started, the idea that the Sackler name stood for one thing and not the other, this whole story really is a parable about marketing. You're marketing a drug, you're marketing a family, you're taking one thing and making it look like another. It's, it's all mutton dressed as lamb. D-
0: during the writing of it, did you find yourself being continuously morally outraged by what you discovered?
2: I did. Um, I think there was a fair amount of outrage and I had this kind of strange experience with my own degree of cynicism, where I think of myself as somebody who's who's fairly jaded at this point. But um, it was a strange story where I kept having to kind of reevaluate my own cynicism. I sort of thought of it as I I kept thinking I'd hit rock bottom. And then it turned out that there was always a sub-basement below. I kept thinking I'd hit bedrock. So... So there was that. I, I think the thing that I really wrestled with was that I did feel a great deal of outrage, but I also thought it was really important not to write the book in a in a in a kind of red a register or a tone of high dudgeon. Hmm. I mean, I-, I needed to kind of play it cool.
0: In a way, that's left for the the reader to to weigh up themselves, really, isn't it that that they are learning things all the time about this family and and can walk away from it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think in some ways it's a it's a story with great moral clarity. Um, it's clear that the book has a point of view. What I wanted to do was allow these scenes and these details to speak for themselves and and sort of Not intervene and and mitigate, uh, or try and inflame the reader's sense of outrage. I wanted the reader just to respond.
0: The 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 book is also a manifestation of the very very dark side of the American dream, which which seems to me one of the one of its selling points, really, because the, it, it's a dream that so many people in America believe in and it's mythologized so well for so many people and and here it is manifest in this family over generations.
2: Yeah, I was I was very mindful as I was doing the research particularly into the early years of these archetypes, these tropes of the American dream. And I think on some level, I'm susceptible to the romance of these things myself. I mean, who wouldn't be, you know, as as an American who grew up on these myths. And part of what I wanted to make clear was that I think there are aspects of that self-congratulatory American mythology that are quite true. I mean, the Sacklers, you know, you have these two people who come from Europe at the turn of the last century with no money. They don't speak English. They move to Brooklyn, this polyglot, bustling um, place that is just exploding with immigrants from the old world. And everybody wants to make their way uh, in this new land. And the Sacklers had this faith that... Notwithstanding their humble origins, they would raise these three boys. The vehicle for um, upward mobility would be education and that there was nothing that their sons couldn't do. And so those three Sackler brothers grow up with this sense that they will get out of life exactly what they put into it. And if they put in just a heroic amount, then they'll be rewarded in equal measure And I'm very mindful of the fact that they were men and they were white, uh, but they also faced certain real challenges. I mean, they faced terrible anti-Semitism. The two younger Sackler brothers were forced to go to medical school in Scotland because there were Jewish quotas at American medical schools, so they couldn't get in. Uh, But that only intensified, I think, their hunger to be accepted at the highest rungs of American society. And- All of that is true, and I wanted to capture some of the idealism of that and the ambition. But I also wanted to capture the fact that at a certain point, there's a kind of amorality that comes into play, and uh, all that hustle ends up having really significant discontents, and so they build the fortune they leave this really profound mark on the world. But I think when you look back on it from the vantage point of the 21st century, uh, it's a legacy that is at best pretty mixed and at worst, on balance, quite malign.
0: Mm. I mean, when you, when you look at how tarnished the name is now versus the, the lack of remorse on the side of the family. It's pretty, pretty stark.
2: It is, yeah. I mean, I think this is part of what was so strange about writing the book was knowing that the family sees it all very differently. And and in my case, even though they wouldn't talk with me, I did want to try and capture the way they see it, not just to give them their say, but also because I think it's psychologically interesting for readers to understand that
0: well, it tells I, us quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. that
2: you, you sort of lay out all the evidence of what happened and then you say, but the family saw it very differently. Um I, I think it's 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 intriguing and confounding that they could see it so differently. But to me, that's that's in part a story about the power of self-delusion, and in part a story about the myopia of the super rich, that, that, that they're they're allowed to persist in these illusions because they're surrounded at all times with people who, uh, who kind of buttress their own very generous view of themselves.
0: So now you've won this illustrious prize and you will go back to New York and carry on writing as a staff uh, member of the New Yorker. What does it mean to you to have won this this prize? I mean, how much do you think your life is going to change?
2: Oh, it's probably too soon to say in terms of my life changing. I, I mean, um, the
0: the book's uh, selling really well already. Well, that's 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 a, that's a
2: wonderful <laughs> that's a wonderful sign. The um, uh, that never hurts. The listen, it's it's a huge affirmation for me Um uh, in part because this is the premier nonfiction prize here, and um, uh, and a, a recognition like that, I think, after a fairly long and lonely period in which I was I was researching this book and writing the book and having to withstand. Um, a certain amount of friction that the family introduced to try and stop me or slow me down. Um, uh, to have the book recognized in this fashion to, uh, to see the prize written up in the papers today and know that there are people who had no idea about the book or indeed about the Sacklers, um, but for whom the, the conferring of the Bailey Gifford really means something. Um, that means an enormous amount to me, and it. Um, uh, I, I think I think I probably could have written the book, and put it out in the world, and had it not sell, and had nobody know about it, and still feel as though I'd done something worthwhile. But it's um, it's just enormously validating to uh, to see this kind of recognition come to it.
0: Well, congratulations, uh, Patrick. Uh, Very well done. That's it um, for this edition of the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. And indeed, thank you for coming with us on this amazing journey where over the past year, we have been lucky enough to explore some of the most fascinating works of nonfiction. If you missed the awards ceremony on the 16th of November, you can watch this on at BG Prize Facebook, YouTube, and on the Bailey Gifford Prize website. The dinner and this podcast were generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Don't miss the upcoming Hay Festival Winter Weekend on the 24th of November, where last year's winner, Craig Brown, will be talking to Patrick live from the festival. To find out more about Empire of Pain or indeed any of the other books on the long list or the short list, please head over to BGPrize on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You can also sign up for the newsletter through the website. As always, thanks again to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for supporting this podcast. And thank you to all of you for listening. Until the next time, bye bye. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.